1 John is a book all about Jesus. It's a book all about Jesus. I know you could really say that about any book of the Bible, but 1 John is really a book all about Jesus. It's about the assurance of salvation that is available to those who believe in Jesus. It's about the call on our lives to live according to the example of Jesus. It's about the call on our lives to love each other and the world like Jesus. And it's about the importance of right belief in Jesus. Again, this is a book all about Jesus. So what better place to start? Let's dive in. Our text this morning is 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Let's stand and read this together. Again, that's 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. This is the word of the Lord. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Let's pray as you're seated. As we approach your word this morning, Father, we ask that you would reveal it to us, that you would open it up to us, that our hearts would be ready to receive it and to apply it to our lives. We trust you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 John. John is the author. It's important to know a little bit about him as we get going. He was an apostle of Jesus Christ, one of the 12 disciples. We know a little bit about John, right? If you're a, if you're a career Christian here, John is an apostle. He's a disciple. He writes authoritatively. It's also important, though, to know that John is a pastor when he's writing this. He served for many years as a pastor in and around Ephesus or Asia Minor. He was head over many churches in what's known as modern-day Turkey. John writes as a pastor with a lot of love for his people. He's their shepherd. He loves his flock. So as we go through this book, we'll notice some of the ways that that love for the church comes out in his writing. Now, out of all of the New Testament authors, John's style of writing is some of the most unique. He has this kind of, um, this interesting feel to him. It's almost poetic. Unlike Paul or Luke or some of these other writers, John has this style that just stands out. He uses really simple language, but the way he writes makes you deeply ponder its meaning. It's at the same time beautiful to read and challenging to understand. John is not super easy to understand. So where a doctor like Luke will tell you the names and dates of events in great detail so there's no confusion, John will say the same things over and over again in roundabout poetic ways. And our text today is no exception. He doesn't write like the way we talk. And because of this, we may miss the fact 
that in verses 1 through 4, John is talking all about Jesus. In short, John's point in this passage, three points, is that Jesus was revealed to the apostles, he was proclaimed by the apostles, and Jesus was believed by Christians. So first, Jesus revealed. John gets out of his own way. He starts off by introducing us to Jesus. We don't have a traditional announcement or author's uh, greeting or anything like that we might see in Paul. He jumps right into why he's writing. All of these phrases in verse 1 have to do with Jesus. He was in the beginning. He was seen. He was heard. He was looked upon. He was touched. And there's a lot tucked in away in these phrases. The opening phrase, that which was from the beginning, hints at Jesus' divinity, his godness. In verse 2, John says that Jesus was with the Father. Now, this sounds a lot like the opening verses of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In the first phrase, John is telling us Jesus is God. And that's not a small point in the letter. John wants to make sure that his flock, the people, believe that Jesus is God. So let me say it like this. Everything that it means to be God, Jesus is. Jesus is God the same way God the Father is God. They share in every quality their Godness. From the beginning of the church, we have confessed that Jesus is God. In the EFCA statement of faith, we explicitly say that we believe that Jesus is God. And that's where John starts the divinity of Christ. But he quickly moves to the revelation of Christ. Jesus was made manifest. He took on human flesh and dwelt among us. Again, that's John 1. And this is what we might call the incarnation. Jesus was 100% God. But in a mysterious, wonderful way, he was also 100% man. He's not half and half. He's not a hybrid. He's not God playing dress up. Everything that it means to be a man, in other words, Jesus is. Except for sin. Again, this is a great mystery. Jesus is God and man in one person. He didn't stop being God for a time when he came to earth. And he never stopped being a man after his resurrection. It's an amazing thing to think about. Jesus is and always will be 100% God and 100% man. And that doesn't mean we'll fully understand what that means. But this kind of mystery should bring us to worship, right? When you're confronted with the reality of Jesus Christ, the God-man, we should be brought to the throne of God. God dwelt among us. The person, Jesus Christ, is God's greatest revelation. And John saw him. He saw him with his own eyes. He heard him with his own ears. He touched him with his own hands. So why is that important? Why is John making that the first thing he tells the people? Why start here? There's a couple of reasons. 
Part of John's intent with the letter is to deal with false teachers. And we'll dive into that more as we go on. Some of these false teachers are are teaching that Jesus didn't actually have a physical body. He wants to squash that belief right away. It's in the first phrase, the first few phrases. Jesus has a physical body. There's plenty of evidence in the New Testament that Jesus had a physical body. It shouldn't be a question to us, right? We read all over the Gospels that Jesus ate and he drank and he slept. In John chapter 20, verse 21, Thomas touches Jesus's real wounds. In Luke 24, 39, Jesus himself denies that he's just a spirit after his resurrection. And this has been, again, a core doctrinal belief for 2,000 years. We confess this in the EFCA statement of faith, again, when we say Jesus Christ is God incarnate and that he rose bodily from the dead. John wants to make it abundantly clear that Jesus has a physical body and that he still has a physical body right now. That's one of his reasons to bring this up in the first few phrases. His second is to remind his audience of his apostleship and his authority in these matters, right? The church office of apostle was a rare office to hold, but John was definitely one of them. He was definitely an apostle. To be an apostle, you had to witness the resurrected Christ. And you had to be specifically commissioned by Christ personally as an apostle. John definitely witnessed the resurrected Christ. And he was specifically commissioned as an apostle by Christ in Matthew 28. He has authority. Well, what's the point? To toot his own horn? Is that why he's bringing this up? No, right? He's reminding his audience as a good pastor that what he's saying is trustworthy, right? The message that they received from John is authoritative. And by the way, it's still authoritative. In Acts chapter 2, the church dedicated themselves to the apostles' teaching. And we, right now, in this room, are doing the same exact thing. As evangelicals, we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, that this is God's Word written to us, right? Amen? Amen. It's our duty to listen to it then and align our lives with it, right? So again, hopefully, that's what we're doing in this room, not to hear some fancy words or to hear a guy who speaks really nicely, but to hear the Word and align our lives with it. No one here has seen Jesus in the flesh. We haven't heard him or touched him. But that doesn't mean he isn't revealed to us. God's word is available to you. Jesus Christ is available to you in God's word. In John chapter 20, right after Thomas touches Jesus' wounds and believed that it was him, Jesus said this, and it applies to you. Have you believed because you've seen me? He says to Thomas. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Again, that's true of you in this room today, if you are a Christian. If you want to know Jesus, you have to read his word. If you want to know Jesus, you have to sit under the word of God proclaimed. And that brings us to the next step in John's chain here. First, we have Jesus revealed. Second, we have 
Jesus proclaimed in verse 2. John witnessed the incarnate Christ, and he proclaimed it to his flock. Again, that's not a small detail. Right belief about Jesus leads to right action. He knew who Jesus was and what he had to do. John was very specific about Jesus. He saw him and heard him and touched him. And he can testify to each one of those things. But he also proclaims it. And that proclamation has content, specific content. The life was made manifest. And we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Three times the word life is used in this passage, all close together. Concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest. We proclaim the eternal life. So what's John talking about? Well, hopefully it's been obvious so far. He's talking about Jesus. This is Jesus. John is saying that Jesus is life, even eternal life. <coughs> eternal life was made manifest, real and physical in Jesus Christ. Whoa. That's kind of mind-boggling, right? We often think of eternal life like this. If I believe in Jesus, he will give me the prize of eternal life, which in one sense is true, okay? But it's more than that. Eternal life is Christ himself. Jesus gives us eternal life by giving us himself. If you are united to Christ by the Holy Spirit today, your eternal life has already started. Can I get an amen? Jesus says in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. What a statement. I am the resurrection and the life. He's not just claiming to be the one who bestows eternal life. He's claiming to be eternal life. Now, last time I was here, we looked at Ephesians chapter 2, the end of Ephesians chapter 2. And Paul says, Jesus Christ himself is our peace. So this might all sound very familiar, right? I mentioned there that typically we think about peace as being a thing, but really it's a person. And that's the same with eternal life. All throughout the New Testament, we, uh, we have our expectations adjusted by the person of Jesus Christ, who's not just our peace and our eternal life, but also our joy and each fruit of the Spirit. This eternal life that Jesus is, it should be an, an encouragement to you today. He is life, so in the midst of busyness and suffering and pain, Jesus is the good life. And it doesn't just refer to being alive. It refers to a joyful relationship with God forever, starting right now. That's what eternal life is. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, eternal life is to know God. And we all know this one, right? 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That eternal life is not just something to look forward to. It's real and available today in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the content of the proclamation. And we have been given this message to proclaim. Paul says in Romans 10, 14, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Talking about unbelievers. And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? You know, if the gospel is going to go out into the world and it's going to be believed, then it has to be proclaimed. It's not just enough. It's not enough to just believe all the right information. We can have all of these doctrines about Jesus lined up. We have our ducks in a row. But do we feel an urgent pressing mission? We have been charged with bringing the world the gospel of Jesus Christ, eternal life. Do we feel the urgency? Do we feel the pressure? We've been given an an amazing, unmeasurable gift in Jesus Christ, right? Are we willing to bring him to others? I think we do a pretty good job of excusing ourselves from the task of evangelism most of the time, myself included. It's much easier to let this duty slip away or expect other Christians to do it for us. And by the way, I found this out recently moving to Florida. Did you know we are the only evangelical free church in Lakeland and in a 30 mile, over 30 mile radius? That's probably not surprising to you, right? This is the the hotbed of many different Christian denominations. But it was surprising to me coming from Iowa where you could throw a rock and hit a free church. (laughs) But this whole evangelism thing is in our nature. It's who we are. It's part of our name, right? We are gospel proclaimers. If there is any church in Lakeland, Florida, where the gospel should be center stage and obvious to the world, it should be Lake Morton Community Church, right? So let's make sure that we, as a body, are first characterized by the gospel. Let's be the light to the world we're called to be, individually and corporately. It's difficult and uncomfortable to share the gospel with the people that we know, let alone strangers. I get that. But God has given each of us, each person in this room, a mission and a mission field. So here's an application point if you're looking for something to write down to do this week. Pray. Pray about your mission field. Where is it? Who is it? Is it your workplace, your neighborhood, your family, an acquaintance, that waiter at the restaurant you really like? What is your mission field? Who can you bring the gospel to? Who has the Lord placed in your life specifically for you? In your prayers, write down on a piece of paper or on your phone or wherever the people and places that come to mind and follow up. I'd love to discuss some of those people with you as you write them down and encourage you 
on how we can reach out to them with the message of Jesus Christ. Because when you take the message of Jesus Christ to the world, there will be many people who believe. Amen? Do you, be, do you believe that? Or do you believe that this is a lost cause? I mean, if we're bringing the message, the good news of Jesus Christ to the world, we believe there will be people who will receive it, right? Jesus said in John 10, My sheep hear my voice and I know them, and they follow me. We're not going out in our own power. We are expecting the Holy Spirit to work. So John starts with Jesus revealed and leads to Jesus proclaimed. And this proclamation leads to third, Jesus believed. Verse 3 says, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So you can see how John's been building each element throughout this really long sentence, right? He started with Jesus revealed to the apostles. They saw him, they touched him, they heard him. Then he moved to Jesus proclaimed, and now he's on to the result of that proclamation. So that, right? That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. The result of the proclamation is fellowship. This is one of John's major focuses in the letter, fellowship. All over the place, he's emphasizing the importance of unity and fellowship in this young church. And the word translated as fellowship is a powerful word that actually is rare in the New Testament. And it only occurs in John's writings right here right in 1 John chapter 1, and nowhere else. So, what does it mean to have fellowship with someone? A few things. It means we share a common and lasting bond. We have a common mission and purpose, and we have a personal relationship. John says that fellowship is the result of proclamation. And there are two groups that have fellowship after that proclamation. Those who believe the gospel message have fellowship with those who proclaim the gospel message. That's why John says, so that you too may have fellowship with us. He's the proclaimer. But those who believe the gospel message also have fellowship with the Father and with Jesus Christ, right? He goes on, and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Okay, now, fellowship is a very Christian-sounding word, right? <clears throat> we don't have hangouts. We have fellowship hours, right? We don't have a meeting room. We have a fellowship hall, right? I've been to a lot of different churches. Fellowship is a fun word to tag along to anything. But it's a powerful scriptural word, it means more than friendship or good conversations. It means something more like kinship or family. And that's a, a wonderful biblical idea that we, outside of the family of God, are brought in, adopted in to the family of God and now have fellowship with those who also believe the gospel and with the Father and His Son. We're no longer outsiders 
right? We share in the common mission of the church. And beyond that, we have personal relationship with God. When you say, when we say as evangelicals, you can't just assent to knowledge. You have to have a personal relationship with Jesus. This is what we're talking about. We're talking about fellowship. That's what it means to have fellowship. You have to be with him and know him and want to be with him and be on the same page and want the things that he wants. You have to love him. And those who believe the gospel, those who believe the gospel, that Jesus Christ died for sins and rose for our justification, have real fellowship, real personal relationship with Jesus Christ and with each other. That's an amazing truth and one that brings joy everlasting, which is where John ends, verse 4. We're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now, don't misunderstand that. He's not using a royal we here in verse 4. He's not referring just to his own joy or to those who are around him sending the letter. He's talking about his own joy and his reader's joy. Our joy may be complete. John, like a good pastor, wants his flock to experience true joy in Christ. How can we feel real joy day in and day out? It starts with fellowship. It starts where John starts. Fellowship with Jesus Christ real, lasting fellowship, and fellowship with Jesus' church, 